Good morning. We have a challenging passage to consider together this morning, um, but it's great to be able to do it in freedom as we sang, in the freedom of God's grace and mercy. So let's uh, go before Him, the Lord, in a word of prayer as we uh, prepare our hearts for this passage. Heavenly Father, we are a confounded people. We are confounded by your relentless pursuit of us, your drawing of us, so that despite our sin, we might have a relationship with you. We're confounded by your grace and your mercy, so undeserved and yet so free. We're confounded by the difficult things that we face in our lives, and sometimes it leads us to ask the question, why, Lord, why? And we're confounded by the fact that you are a God who would tell us about yourself so that we might be in right relationship with you. And so as you have done this here, we bow our hearts before you. We submit ourselves to your perfect and holy word. And we ask that you would use it in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. While grace is receiving something you don't deserve... Mercy is not receiving something that you do. Grace is the gift of unmerited favor, and mercy is the withholding of a just punishment. Grace is abundant love to the unworthy. Mercy is compassionate love to the guilty. And they often come hand in hand. In literature, we find a wonderful example in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. When the bishop shows mercy and grace to Jean Valjean, the story's protagonist, the bishop has pity on Valjean and he gives him a place to stay, but the convicted criminal tramples on his generous hospitality by absconding with his precious silver under the cover of night. And when the police catch Valjean and bring him back to the scene of the crime, the bishop not only tells them to let him go, that the silver was a gift, but he adds a pair of silver candlesticks to the hall. Grace. He gives Valjean his freedom and the silver he stole, plus some. Mercy. The bishop could have sent him back to prison for his crime, what he would have deserved, but he didn't. And the intended response of the reader is surprise. Hugo highlights Valjean's response of utter shock. The pardon thief opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. He was trembling in every limb. Jean, Jean Valjean was like a man on the point of fainting. And the bishop's extravagant mercy changes the entire trajectory of Valjean's life. Mercy and grace always come at a cost. And in the case of Jean Valjean, they come at a cost to the bishop. He loses his valuable silver. Valjean's gift comes at his expense. The bishop's loss is Valjean's gain. When someone fails to repay a loan and the debt is forgiven, there's a cost to the lender. When someone purchases a car without knowing that it's a lemon and needs to pay for hidden repairs, there's a cost to the buyer. But the cost of grace and mercy need not be monetary. When a person forgives someone who has caused immeasurable pain, there's an emotional cost to grace and mercy. 
It costs something to forgive. It costs something to withhold vengeance. And the greater the debt, the more shocking the mercy. Of course, there's no greater example of grace and mercy than what God has done for us through his gospel. The entire Bible is really a story of God's shocking mercy to sinful, fallen humanity. The story of his loving, gracious pursuit of his creation that had willfully rebelled against him. But there are some accounts in God's word that really highlight the shocking nature of his mercy. And our passage this morning is one of them. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I invite you to open your Bibles with me there if you haven't already, or feel free to use the Bible that's stored under the seat in front of you. And here in this passage, God has already chosen and anointed King David and described him as a man after his own heart. But the king has just committed two terrible transgressions, compelling adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband Uriah as an attempted cover-up. And so that leaves us with the questions, how will God respond to these horrific sins? How will he handle this tragic unfaithfulness? Will he simply wink at David's iniquity? If he did that, he would violate his own justice and holiness. Will he cut the king off and move on to the next monarch? Well, if he did that, he would compromise his promises to David and thus his truthfulness. And the answer is neither. What we find instead is that our just God puts away sin by his shocking mercy. And as we'll see, God's great mercy comes at an incredible cost to himself. Mercy and grace always come at a cost. And there are four movements in our passage. Nathan's confrontation, the Lord's consequences for David's sin, David's cry for mercy, and finally David's conquest of the Ammonites. And we start with the prophet Nathan's courageous confrontation of the king at God's direction as we consider this chapter together. 2 Samuel 12, starting with verse 1, the first half of the verse. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Stop right there. Our only encounter with Nathan, the prophet up until this point in the biblical narrative, came back in 2 Samuel 7 when David endeavored to build a house for the Lord in the holy city, Jerusalem, a temple to replace the traveling tabernacle, a permanent place for the people to worship, a set sanctuary for Israel's sacrifices, and a home for the Ark of the Covenant. And in response to David's earnest desire, the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to deliver a twofold message to the king. The first part of the message is he would not be the one to build the Lord a temple, his son would, and a king from David's line would reign on his throne forever. We call this exchange, when we we mentioned this before, the the Davidic covenant, the Lord's promise to David. And so here, the Lord sends Nathan to David once again. God initiates this exchange as evidence of his loving faithfulness to David. But the news that the prophet must deliver this time is far more difficult. Nathan is fulfilling one of the key functions of the prophetic office to proclaim God's messages to his people. And often, uh, these are leaders that he gives these messages to, and the words uh, from the Lord often come in a form of a rebuke or a call to repentance. Now, prior to this moment in Israel's history, the only other example that we have of a prophet-king relationship is Samuel and Saul. And although the Lord was relentless in pursuing King Saul through Samuel's repeated appeals, Saul was loath to listen. 
He failed to follow God's commands. He resisted repentance until his dying day. And later, uh, later kings would follow Saul's sinful pattern. Ahab would not listen to Elijah. The final kings of Judah rejected and even abused Jeremiah, just to name a few examples. But how would David respond to Nathan in the wake of his egregious sin against Bathsheba and then Uriah? Well, the prophet creatively constructs a case study to confront the king. And he asked for David, David's help in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now Nathan's parable is exceedingly careful and clever to emphasize the scandalous nature of David's sin. David is the rich man with many sheep and cattle representing his many wives and concubines. He has no need to take anything from the poor man who represents Uriah the Hittite. And yet, he does. He takes his one and only lamb who was like a daughter to the poor man. Now that may seem like a weird way to describe a pet lamb. Uh, but Nathan is signaling for the reader that this is Bathsheba, for her name in Hebrew means daughter of an oath or daughter of seven. And we find the thrust of Nathan's hypothetical but confrontational story in verse 4. The rich man took the poor man's lamb. This Hebrew verb to take means to grasp, to seize, to take one as one's own property. And even though people are not property, this here is a theft. And this is the exact same word that we find in the previous chapter, chapter 11, verse 4, when David sent messengers and took her. That is, he took Bathsheba. Now, how would David respond to the heinous injustice of the rich man? Well, he renders his judgment for Nathan in verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, just as the thrust of Nathan's parable is the injustice of the rich man's theft, the thrust of David's response is a call for justice, for restitution. His anger is rightly kindled against the rich man. And the judgment, judgment that he renders is not merely a sentence for the sin, but also an explanation behind it. His sentence on the rich man mirrors the sentence that he had declared to Abner, Saul's general, back in 1 Samuel 16, when David snuck into Saul's camp and stole his spear. See, Abner had failed to protect the Lord's anointed. And for this reason, David declared from a distance, as the Lord lives, you deserve to die. And while this punishment might not be stipulated by the law, David is emphasizing just how awful the rich man's actions are. And he goes on to declare the sentence that was mandated by God's law. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. David knew the law. This comes right out of Exodus. Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. 
But see, David's problem is that the sentence that his actual crime deserves is far worse than this. David is familiar with the punishment deserves, and he also understands the reason for the hypothetical rich man's sin, as he reveals in verse 6, because he had no pity. This word pity is the same word used in Exodus 2 as Pharaoh's daughter looked upon baby Moses in a basket among the reeds in the river Nile. And although she knew that this was a Hebrew baby under the sentence from her very own father, she had pity on him and spared him. And yet the rich man in Nathan's parable had no pity, no compassion on this fellow image bearer in the story, who was presumably a fellow Israelite in this case study for the king. David might not know it yet, but the reader certainly knows that this man in the story is David. And a key problem that he has is his lack of compassion. Now, this isn't the first time that David sins against the Lord. It won't be the last. And yet our God is faithful to use his word to confront us in our sin. And he does this because he is compassionate. He does have pity on us. It's because he loves us. And it's his kindness toward us that leads us to repentance. The Lord has made promises to David that he intends to keep, and he's made us a promise, those of us who have trusted in his son, that nothing, nothing can separate us from his love, not even our own sin. He will never leave us or forsake us. And in the depths of of our sin, our Lord is faithful to pursue us and to confront us and to call us to repentance so that he might restore fellowship with us. And one of the primary ways that he does this is through his word, where we not only find ourselves in the flawed so-called heroes of scripture, but we also find God's gracious provision for our sin in his son. So the question that this begs as we see him responding to the word, although he does not know it yet, is do you avail yourself to the riches of God's word day after day so that he might lovingly confront you and call you to repentance? Do you have a daily plan for regular nourishment on his life-giving scriptures? We desperately need his word and we need it every single day. But just like David, we need more than his word. David knew the law. He knew what was right. And yet the deceitfulness of his own heart kept him from seeing the severity of his own sin. And this is why we need the loving confrontation of people like Nathan in our lives. Unless we have a mirror or a good friend, we will move through the day with that gigantic piece of spinach in our teeth. We will. We should go through the day assuming our own blindness. And we should welcome The truth-telling of others. What if someone tells you that you have spinach in your teeth and you say, no, I don't? Are you going to believe that or are you going to listen to your friend? We should welcome the truth-telling of others and we, we should respond to it humbly as a gift. Now, if you were caught in a transgression, let's say today, who would you, who would call you to repentance? Who in your life asks you the hard questions? To whom have you given permission to challenge you in love? And how do you respond when they do? This is just one reason, just one of many, why we emphasize membership at Cherrydale. It's not putting your name on a list or joining a club. It is not. Becoming a member means that we, together, as a family, make promises to follow Jesus faithfully and to do it together together. 
We agree to encourage one another and hold each other up and then challenge each other when we stray. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus and you've been attending services with us for some time, I encourage you, as a shepherd of this flock, I encourage you to consider joining us in membership, to covenant with us, to follow Jesus faithfully, because a community rooted in God's word is just one way that our faithful God confronts our sin in love. No matter how well we know God's word, we need each other to minister the word lovingly to one another. This is also one reason why we have life groups. They make it possible for the church to be smaller and to forge relationships that are marked by care and encouragement and, when necessary, loving confrontation. And this takes courage from everyone who's involved to say hard things. That takes courage. It also takes courage to receive them with humility. And so if you're a member of this church family, but you don't have people who might encourage and challenge you, I want you to consider joining a life group. Let us know that you want and need the regular accountability of biblical community. Now with David having pronounced this sentence on this hypothetical rich man, Nathan turns David's angry pointing finger of judgment right back on the king himself in verse 7. And it's in this next section of the passage that we find the Lord's just consequences for David's sin, but also the promise to put away David's sin in accordance with his shocking mercy. In verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, this is not a compliment, okay? He's not saying you are, you are the man. He's not saying that. Six times in, this, in his story, Nathan uses the word man or men, and now that David himself has pronounced a proper punishment for the thief in question, the prophet lets the king know that he is the thieving rich man. And Nathan then turns to render the Lord's judgment on David. David has pronounced the sentence, and now it's God's turn. And in verses 7 to 10, he focuses on the consequences for David's murder of Uriah. And in the second half of verse 7, Nathan says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. See, God is speaking now. As he's prone to do throughout his word, the Lord reminds his people, in this case he's speaking to David, of his kind intentions, and he recounts his faithfulness, his deeds of loving kindness. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. His heart toward David was one of abundant blessing. Some have used these verses here to suggest that God is endorsing polygamy. But we have no record of David marrying any of Saul's wives. The emphasis here is rather that God had given David the authority of king, as king over all the people of Israel and Judah, including Saul's own household. Plus, the Lord's consequences for David's adultery hardly seems like a place where God would just insert his, his support for polygamy. That seems like a strange move. Nathan continues, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Not only has David taken Uriah's wife and killed Uriah, he's done so using the enemies of Israel. He actually used the sword of the Ammonites 
to kill Uriah. This is complete and utter disrespect for this man. And for this reason, the sword would never depart from David's house. The consequence for his own violent murder would be the presence of violence and murder in his family line. And, and the Lord says, forever. As the story of David's family unfolds in the chapters that follow, we find David's son Absalom murdering his brother Amnon. Absalom then goes and leads an uprising against his father before being killed by Joab. Solomon kills his brother Adonijah. Murder after murder. Why? Well, one potential answer is because they, that's what they've seen their dad do. But, but the Lord tells us it's because David despised the Lord and his word and murdered Uriah himself. And this pain in his family was the Lord's discipline for his sin. But the Lord isn't done proclaiming his sentence. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now these are some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. These are incredibly difficult to read because God is not merely predicting Absalom's wretched, wicked sin against David's concubines in sight of all Israel, which we will encounter in 2 Samuel 16. But his judgments in this section function as edicts. Look at the language. He declares himself to be the first mover. I will raise up evil. I will take up. I will give. I will do this. And so even though we know that God can never sin or never do evil, we also find examples throughout the scripture where he uses evil agents to accomplish his holy will. And this might make us squirm as we read it. But God has no issue declaring to David his providence in these consequences. Unless we consider David as the only person affected by the Lord's discipline, we must pause and consider his sons and his concubines and the suffering that they, deserved, that they endured. They didn't deserve this. We know that God is using it to get David's attention, but what about their hearts? What about them? Well, God created each person described in this account in his image, and as a result, each of these people is worthy of dignity and honor and respect. Everybody has a soul that can never die, and they will spend eternity either with God in blessed joy or separated from him in endless suffering. Each person, every person is a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And all people will experience suffering in this life, some from their own sin and some from the sin of others. This is just a part of the human experience, even if it's hard to read when it's boiled down so succinctly in a passage like this one. We also know that God uses physical pain to get our attention about spiritual realities. And what we can't know, because God doesn't tell us here, is the innumerable, innumerable things that God is doing behind the scenes to comfort and care for and draw to himself those that are afflicted in this story. Because that's what God does. That's the kind of God that he is. So if you're here today and you would not call yourself a Christian, we're glad that you're here. We're thrilled that you're here. But I imagine you might struggle with the absence of justice in the world. You likely have no answer for how evil like that of David or his sons will be treated justly, truly justly. 
The governments of this world and their judicial systems are flawed. We know that. Some are downright wicked and evil. And we cannot rely on them to deliver perfect justice. Uh, Even for those of us who are Christians, God's edicts in this passage might leave us feeling emotionally unsatisfied. And this is why I find John, what John Piper has to say about these very verses immensely helpful to my own soul, and so I share them with you. This is what he writes in his book called Providence. On this side of the cross of Christ, confidence in God's steadfast love is how Christians endure the unremitting hardships and sorrows of life. We know that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But we do not endure and thrive by thinking that man, Satan, or fate has decisive control over sin and evil in the world or in our lives. Rather, we press on and rejoice by trusting the sovereign God of the universe who proved his love in Jesus Christ, who governs all things, including family desolations like David's. We press on, believing that all God's paths are steadfast love and faithfulness to those who are in Christ Jesus, and by believing that what is impossible with man is possible with God, including the great impossible work of new birth. Our suffering in this life, no matter how painful or severe, is not the final word. Our just God is at work. And in the end, we will agree that what he has done was for good when we see what he wants us to see. Every calamity that we encounter in this world is a call to repentance. Every tragedy entreats us to turn to the only one who can provide a remedy for our sin. We are all sinners. And at the exact same time, we are all sufferers in this broken, sinful world. And so if you're here today and you've not placed your trust, you've not put your confidence in the sovereign God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who has demonstrated his unbelievable, amazing love through the death of his own son, I urge you to repent today so that the suffering that you will experience in this world will not be outmatched by the suffering you could experience for eternity. Respond as David does when Nathan pronounces God's sentence in verse 13, and that's with turning to God, with repentance. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. When Samuel confronted King Saul, he never repented like David does in response to Nathan's parable. And we see David's full repentance uh, of these sins in Psalm 51, which we heard read earlier. David deserved to lose his own life. That's what he deserved. That's what the law demanded. But instead, the Lord shows shocking mercy. And it's because of this mercy that David repents. And that Nathan is able to offer God's legitimate, true forgiveness. So is God just giving David a pass? Is he just letting him off the hook? Most certainly not. Tom reminded us last week that it's not enough for our sin to be covered. It must be put away through the gospel. And it's in this putting away that we find God's ultimate cosmic justice. But isn't the sacrifice of his perfect sinless son, Jesus, actually the greatest injustice 
in history. He didn't deserve to die. Well, on the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself. He became sin so that God's justice and righteous wrath against our sin, against all sin, might be satisfied in his death, in our place. And as a result, there will be justice for every sin ever committed in history, every last one. And in the final judgment, in the heavenly courtroom of perfect justice, every person will be sentenced to pay for their own sins forever. Or, or I have good news for you, because if you have trusted in Jesus, your sins will be declared paid in full by the spotless lamb of Jesus Christ. We look backwards, but David was looking forward to the day when one from his line would give his life for the sins of many. The sword would never depart from his house. It would actually fall on his own descendant, Jesus. Our just God put away our sin by putting it on his son. His mercy is shocking. And despite God's forgiveness, David's consequences continue in the next section. Grace and discipline are not mutually exclusive. And just as Nathan promised, we find our good sovereign God taking away what he's given in the middle of verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him and to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Now here we see David's return of faith in the midst of the worst situation imaginable. God has already declared to David what would happen to this child he's fathered with Bathsheba. Notice also that she's repeatedly called Uriah's wife as a reminder that David took her. Nevertheless, he fasts and he prays and he implores God to relent from his declared discipline, crying out for mercy on his son. But God does not relent. Just as the law demanded fourfold payment for the stolen lamb, in verse 18, God takes the first of David's four sons that will die in succession. The son named Son, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. Verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped and then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now David's Faith in begging the God for mercy is then matched by his response to God's answer. Even though the Lord takes his child born to Bathsheba, David surprises his servants by washing himself and then worshiping the Lord. There's nothing he can do now for 
uh, God has taken his son. Like Job, he does not charge God with wrong, for God creates every child and they belong to him. He knows every hair on their heads. And in verse 23, David states with faithful confidence hope for a reunion that should serve as a blessed balm to anyone who has endured the death of a child. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. See, as we know all too sadly, children do not escape the calamity and carnage of this life. The unspeakable suffering and death that mars our sinful human existence in this broken, fallen world. And yet it would seem from this passage and others that there is real hope for infants who die to be spared from condemnation. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, the Apostle Paul presents this standard for judgment for all of humanity. He writes, what can be known about God is plain to them, that is plain to all people, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. But what about children like infants who cannot perceive these things at all? Yes, they're brought forth in iniquity, as David affirms in Psalm 51. They inherit the guilt of Adam, but their inability to see and understand what God has revealed through creation gives them a legitimate excuse on Judgment Day. Now, how Jesus' blood as the only means by which they can be saved is applied to their account without faith, I do not know. It's a mystery that I leave to God. But I have confidence in God's kindness to this baby and others like him, the hope of a future reunion if you as the parent have trusted Christ. Now, if you've ever lost a child before, um, I want you to know that I, I prayed for you in preparing for this sermon because I know that this likely stirs up grief that will never go away. There is a unique wrongness to losing a child because it falls outside of the expected natural order of the way that we expect things to go. But I want you to know that God knows your pain that will never go away. He knows what it's like to experience the death of a son. And he sees you. And he cares. And I believe that he sees Bathsheba too. After all, she experienced being taken by David. She experienced the death of her husband. And now she experiences the death of a son because of David's sin. The Lord takes away and the Lord gives. And to Bathsheba, he gives another son. And not just any son, but the future heir. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. And so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. The royal genealogy in 1 Chronicles 3 seems to suggest that Solomon was the fourth son of David born to Bathsheba. But the focus in on here in Solomon makes, uh, makes sense since God loved him and chose him out of all of David's sons. We have 19 recorded to succeed his father on the throne. And not only that, but in Matthew 1, Solomon is listed as a descendant of Joseph, Jesus' legal father. So despite her immense suffering, Bathsheba receives a great honor from God, an important place in the line of the Messiah who would save his people from their sins. God's grace is greater than David's sin, and it's greater than ours. And with this news of Solomon's birth, the author turns our attention back to the battlefield. Verse 26, now Joab fought against Rabbah, 
of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I've taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold. And in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. And then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now when this whole ordeal with David's heinous sin began back in chapter 11, he was forsaking his responsibilities as king to lead the people in battle, specifically against the Ammonites in the city of Rabbah. He had left his general Joab to lead the fighting in his stead, and it was, it was his lingering in the palace that got him into trouble and his sin with Bathsheba. And so now David has an opportunity to correct his earlier wrong. We learn that Joab has secured the city, and he basically invites David to swoop in and take credit for the work that he's already done so that it's not named after him. He's setting the ball on the tee. He's, he's helping the king to get back in the game. And so that's what David does. And he gets a new crown out of, the, out of the deal. It weighs 75 pounds, a talent. Imagine wearing that puppy around the palace for fun. And he claims great spoil and takes captives for work back in Israel before returning to the palace in Jerusalem. Now this might seem unrelated to the sections before it. It feels like a shift, but it really serves as a bookend to this two-chapter two section of David's treacherous transgressions and his subsequent repentance. Chapter 11 starts with David forsaking battle against the Ammonites, and chapter 12 ends with him rejoining it. And we see his faithfulness restored once again as he reclaims his responsibilities as king, and we see his faith restored. But unfortunately, we're not yet finished witnessing the cavalcade of consequences that his sin will bring down on himself and his family. The ensuing chapters are painful to read for that very reason. But with this fourth and final section of our passage, it's a wonderful reminder of the ways in which Jesus has won the ultimate battle against sin and death. And we do not deserve what he has done for us. And we can add nothing to his equation of redemption. All we do is trust in what he's done for us. And in so doing, we become co-heirs with Christ. We receive his victory over sin and death. We receive the riches of his inheritance because our gracious God has won the battle and we get the credit. We get the blessing and benefit. That's what kind of God he is. This passage is an amazing reminder of God's intentions towards sinful humanity. In his faithfulness, he confronts our sin, no matter how egregious it may be, and he does it in love. Our just God puts away our sin, and he does it by a shocking mercy. And the cost of that mercy falls on God himself, the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus. The Lord is sovereign, and he's also good. Whether he gives or he takes away, we can say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. And our gracious God has already won the ultimate battle. And he offers us to receive the credit by considering us with the righteousness of his perfect son, Jesus. So let's respond to his holiness in the same way that David does in closing Psalm 51. 
This is what, what David writes. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So may we respond with the same humble, repentant praise and worship. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for who you are. And this is a humbling passage. God, I pray that every single one of us would be humbled as we consider the weight of our own sin. And I pray every one of us would respond to your word and your people as we're confronted by it. And I pray every single one of us would be putting our trust and confidence in the only solution that you've provide, provided for our sin, the only means whereby mercy and justice and grace co-mingle, and that is in the cross of Christ. And I pray that our, our eyes would be there in our worship and our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.